0: Today's show is brought to you by Hana. For the past few years, I've been taking Hana One, an all-natural, daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. Hana also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit hana.com, that's H-A-N-A-H dot com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Afromo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Joe DeLeo, an elite college rower himself. Joe has since helped several D1 programs advance their strength and conditioning. He was the lead S&C specialist at Lawrence Memorial Hospital Performance and Wellness Center and was named the head strength and conditioning coach for the Portuguese Rowing Federation. Joe also owns Leo Training which focuses on high performance and injury rehab for the sport of rowing. Joe is also the host of the Leo Training Podcast and the co-founder of The Science of Rowing. Thanks for joining us today,
1: Joe. Uh, Phil and I are really excited to talk to you about rowing and uh, strength and conditioning and a bunch of fun topics. Um, was Is rowing your, was that your first true love in sports or what was your first true love in sports? Wow, what a great question. Uh,
2: first off, thanks to, you know, Phil and Jim, thank you both for the opportunity, uh, to be here, um, and just kind of share my experience and my expertise. Um, I would say rowing is probably the the first sport that I I excelled at and started having some success. Uh, I tried a lot of different sports when I was younger and nothing quite stuck. Um, so, you know, I think in rowing circles, they, they talk a lot about sort of that's the sport that athletes gravitate to because they, they had a hard time in, in uh, other, you know, sports. And that was definitely the case for me. Um, so tried my hand at basketball, wrestling, cross-country running, uh, football. Um, but rowing was the first one where I kind of sat down and, you know, started having some, some early success, enough that maybe stick with it for, you know, at this point for more than half my life.
0: I love that. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about, that moment that it clicked for you, and, and you were like, oh man, yeah, okay. Because obviously, people, a lot of people don't realize that initially any kind of paddle sport. So, when you first, you know, it, obviously, stand up paddling has been a gateway drug for a lot of people with with uh, water sports. Um, but even that, if you started to get, if you put someone right on a racing, you know, Kyle Lenny and Connor Baxter on flat water are racing these 24, 23 inch wide craft now in stand up. And the average person going from a recreational board of, say, 32, 34 inches wide, um, really deep, you know, a lot of thickness, a lot of volume, would probably just fall in a lot. It would be called fall-in paddleboarding. Well, now a rowing shell, obviously, is a pretty tippy piece of equipment, and you've got to be able to apply power. And therein lies the rub, right? So what, what was that moment like when you first got over that, that tippiness and were able to apply power in that, that kind of unstable craft? And, and you were like, okay, I'm feeling like I, I'm really starting to get this glide thing down.
2: Yeah, um, it was uh, probably go back. I started, the first time I started rowing was in the summer, like fifth grade. And my parents got me involved with it because uh, at the time I was a little bit overweight. And uh, they wanted me to just make sure I was having some regular physical activity and making friends and that type of thing. Um, but I think early on that sensation of you're flying over water and uh, it's quite electric. Um, there's nothing quite like being on the water, uh, especially as you know the sun comes up or uh, the sun's getting ready to set. And sort of the world around you is winding down and it's just everything's serene and peaceful and quiet and you are uh you know giving a lot of your your yourself in that moment um and just you pass by your your environment and uh it, it, it's just, it's something to take in where you can sort of still be connected to the city or your, your local community, um, but very much you're in your own little bubble, in your own little world.
0: Is there something to be said for being at a different vantage point? So obviously I mentioned stand up, obviously you're standing, surfing, you're standing, so if people have tried either of those um, you're you're in that more upright position, but obviously with rowing, you're, you're seated. And so it changes your vantage point of that world that's passing you by a little bit.
2: Yeah, and, uh, rowing is unique in that regard, right? So you're uh, giving a, a huge amount of physical output, but you're actually not directly looking where you're pointed. Um, and so, you know, when you're on a, a race course that's on an issue, you have buoys and you can kind of direct your, your course off of that. But when you are out training, you know, I'd be on a lake, river or back bays, uh, depending what part of the world or country you're in. Um, and so you very much have to kind of, you know, sort of turn around mid, mid drive or uh, excuse me, mid recovery to, to see where you are and adjust your course. Um, and so, you know, I think that's one of the things that kind of lends itself to. You have to develop skills that are sort of outside of just the, the physical. Um, you have to, you know, appreciate wind, uh, current if there is any, um, you know, those types of things. So there's a little bit of of um, other elements there that you start to learn and take into account, uh, especially when you're when you're in a boat sculling and you, you're responsible for
0: steering your own course. You mentioned. Um... So the need for awareness of self, obviously, but also awareness of your environment. Um, you mentioned having to, to, you know, marry that with the skill of actually manipulating these, the, you know, these two objects potentially if you're sculling, um, or one object if it's more of a sweep situation, and then also again to, to apply the physical characteristics of endurance, of power, of speed, of strength. Um, mentally where do you where does your head go when you're in you know you've warmed up and 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 you're you're flowing you're gliding what is it like how does your mind maybe still or dial in or what is that transition from everything that's going on on land to almost having to be in a flow state to (laughs) to be able to pilot this thing
2: yeah that's a great question um i would say early on um know you're you're just developing the skills and learning a row and and get you know decent fundamental technique down so you can be competent but i would say you know towards the end of my high school career and then through college um you know having those type of flow state movements where you can um begin like a hard training session uh with your teammates and and you very much can kind of get into a rhythm you know from stroke one at the beginning of the pieces um, what I would focus a lot on um, was my, my own breathing. I would listen to the sounds of the boat or the oarlock as I was moving. Um, and a lot of the time, I sort of wasn't aware of sort of the external, you know, whether it was a, uh, you're in a race or a, a crew next to you, because rowing's not a sport where you can... Uh, change, you know, offensively or defensively what your opponent's doing. You very much have to focus on yourself. Um, and that's what's really going to drive the, the outcome of the race. You know, you're not going to be able to steal a basketball or, you know, do an audible at the line of scrimmage. It, it's not that type of sport. Um, so the, the internal, you know, focus has to be there and it has to be constant. Um, and it's something you have to develop over time you know, to be strong and resilient, um, you know, especially when you get into that third 500 of a race. What,
1: what are some, uh, favorite characteristics of, uh, a good teammate, um, in the sport of rowing? What are, what are some examples that come to mind?
2: So, I mean, you know, the, the, the ones you, you'll hear a lot are, you know, hard work or work ethic, um, consistency, um, but you know, probably one of the best pieces of advice I ever got was uh, from my friend Nads Rasmussen, and this was after my own you know athletic career, and we were doing a masters rowing camp in Portugal, and he we were we were rigging a boat, I think, in prep for one of the training sessions, and uh, he talked about humility and the need to always be humble, and. I'll never forget it because uh, we we needed like a we needed a tool or something and we didn't have it and uh, he's like all right I'll be it right back and like you know here's somebody that's an Olympic gold medalist and sprints up the hill to go to the, the shop to grab us a tool so that we can you know adjust the boat properly and the point you know, I think with his advice to me as a friend and then his actions also is it doesn't matter who you are or where you are in your life. At no point are you ever too good to do any sort of level of work. You never go beyond that. And I think, um, you know, there's there's something to be said for that, you know, because you have to remain humble. uh, And a lot of the times the things that are going to get you where you want to go is the work that is just, frankly, it's, it's, you know, you roll up your sleeves and it's not necessarily enjoyable or sexy or fun, but you got to do it.
1: Yeah. That makes so much sense in terms of, you know, never being too big, you know, no job is too small or, or no job is too big. And so great teamwork and leadership in terms of the humility aspect. Um, And then obviously on game day, so to speak, it's got to be a lot of confidence in yourself and your teammates.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think one of the things when I was racing in college, um, I think everybody works hard and trains hard, but, you know, I would always look back and, and tell my teammates and, and the things that I would sort of try to reaffirm with them is that, you know, I always felt like we, you know, nobody trained harder than us. And that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have teammates or competitors out there that aren't fitter or, um, don't have, you know, somebody that has a better ERG score, but having that confidence that you, you know, on race day can put yourself in a, in a physical place of discomfort and just go to the line with the other people on your boat, that's trust. And that's what you need. And you need to you need to know that you're going to do it or they need to know that you're going to do it and you need to know that they're going to do it and it's it's unquestioned uh that that thought uh can't be you know unanswered you need to know before race day
0: i love that um when it came to the various disciplines within rowing because obviously sculling is one thing you know and then double skulls are another and then you know, you've got your, your pairs, your, your fours, your eights. Um, it, there's all different disciplines within the main discipline itself. So wh- which one out of all of those or which two did you gravitate towards and why?
2: So I spent most of my high school career rowing in the eight. Um, we did some small boat work um, and a little bit of sculling here and there. Um, in college, I spent some time in the pair. Uh, especially over the summer, but the majority of my rowing career was, was in a, a bigger boat. Um, we did a lot of training in college and fours as well. Um, and I didn't really start sculling and spending a ton of time in a single until grad school and the three years that I was coaching at Syracuse and going out on a very consistent basis. Um, but I would say the eight is there's nothing like it because it's the, it's the, it's the fastest boat and uh i'll never forget competing at canadian henley and um i think it was the heat and they opened the dam above the race course and so we had like a very strong current going in the direction of the race course and we ended up going right around like 528 or 529 um and at that time i think it was within 10 to 12 seconds of the like the world record and i was like that is I don't think I'll ever go faster than that again. And so that that feeling of going that fast in a boat is highly addictive. And it's just like, I I think there's very few things out there where you know that you are responsible for that speed due to your physical output.
0: Sure. Um, Yeah, it's kind of like talking to Kai Lenny back in the day, you know, to suck the mag many times. And Connor as well. And Travis Grant, you know, have all won Molokai to Oahu you do not want that to be a no wind day because the few no or light wind days are just brutal you know because it it, yeah sure it looks nice it's kind of glassy or as glassy as an inter-island channel between Hawaiian islands can be but the ones that they've really loved and again like you said with the records um you want that wind at your back and 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 yeah that's pretty much how, how Kai described it to me is is you're just flying on the water um Talk to us a little bit about that transition from a high school athlete to a college athlete.
2: Yes, it's totally different. Um, you know, I mean, I always was very intense and serious about sports um, and still am, uh, but the shift now is more from a coaching perspective than an athlete perspective. Um, but you know, at the time, I think still early on, like the social component in high school was a huge part of you know making friends and having um, you new know, community people you hung out with outside of school. Um, where
0: was this, Joe? Where, where where did you go to high school?
2: Uh, so uh, I grew up in New Jersey, South Jersey, um, and I uh, went to Mainland High School, which is in Limwood. So the the student body was pulled from from three townships: Northfield, Limwood, and Summers Point. Um, and so we had athletes, you know, pulling from, from those three areas. Um, but it was just important because, you know, you, uh, rowing is such a a sport where you rely so much on, on your teammates literally to, you know, move you down the course. Right. Um, so having and spending time and developing camaraderie and, and, and a bond outside of practice is really, really important. And I think the the difference when you get into college, you know, is very clear, right? Um, I had the opportunity to to go to George Washington University on a partial, you know, athletic scholarship. And, nothing wrong
0: with the partial, baby. That's what I did. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, nothing wrong with it at all. But it's it's more serious in some ways. It's a it's a job. Um, you know, you're expected to. The expectation is that you're going to show up every day for practice. That's the bare minimum. And the other expectation is you're going to, you know, produce a certain level of athletic, you know, success, or at the very least contribute to that, right, in a team environment. Um, and that's why, you know, recruiting is a big part of, you know, any collegiate sport. Um, so I think those are probably the, the two biggest differences. Whereas there's a shift uh, from having fun and the development, you know, and meeting people and having friends and enjoying that, that, that experience in high school too. College was, was much more, it's, you started to really focus on the competition and results started to matter both at an individual and a team level.
0: I love that. It, obviously, there's a lot of demands. You know, um, back in the day, we didn't have the socials so much, right? But uh, got a few years on you. But you know, it was you know <laughs> it was handwriting all my papers, right? As, as, as uh, I know Jim was too. But even without all the socials and the screen addiction, all the things we see now, there's a lot on you. And like for me, I was on you know playing two sports, so two partial scholarships, and had academic standards to maintain, not just to be eligible, but to keep an a- academic scholarship. Um, How did you manage to balance school on the water, the off the water training, the social component once you got into those college years?
2: Yeah, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but when I went to Syracuse, um, the head coach who's still there, Dave Roishman, he would talk about this. I think he kind of gave this speech almost once every year to the athletes and he would talk about a triangle. And so you have your athletic Part of the triangle, your academics and your social, and he's like, You can do two of those things at 100, and the and something's got to give. Um, and so I reflect back on that, and for me, it was very much school and rowing. And you know, that did not to say during college, I didn't socialize or go out, you know, um, and have you know a, a beer party um and, and enjoy my time but my my focus and my intention wasn't that you know uh, my, my intention was to number one was to get good grades I was there to be a student athlete and number two was to to try to be you know the best oarsman I could be
0: I love that did you come from um did your parents and grandparents go to college did you come from an academically minded family or just a family of hard workers or a bit of both uh,
2: my father went to undergrad, um, and then my mother uh, went to trade school, mm-hmm. um, and then yeah, so I was the first one in my immediate family outside of my father that, that went to college. Um, some of my aunts and uncles and, and such went to went to college as well.
0: Yeah, where do you think that that um, that drive came from? The jo- the Joe I know and love, the driven Joe, the focused Joe.
2: You know. I've probably spent more time thinking about that in the last few years of my life than anything else. And um uh it is, you know, I don't know if I, I have that quite answered yet, but what I would say at this point is it's it's like an insatiable hunger, an insatiable itch, right? It just sort of gnaws at you, right? Uh almost like like a level of anxiety, but it's, it can be, um, it can be a driver, right. It can kind of propel you. And so, um, what I did a very poor job when I was younger of is not taking enough time to account for the, the moments of success or progress. And I do a much better job of that these days, um, and enjoying the journey instead of focus so much on, well, I did this, but I didn't do that and I'm not quite here yet, or I didn't get this result. Um, but yeah, sort of, I, I still very much have that, right. It's like, I, I always try to dream and think big and shoot for the stars, um, you know, and then let the chips fall where they may.
1: Yeah. I was wondering about the the parent thing too, Phil. Uh, uh, how about siblings? Where are you in the birth order?
2: Yeah. So I'm the oldest, I got two younger sisters. Okay. Um, so They uh, both tried rowing at one point. It didn't stick quite, quite as much as well as it did for me. Um, But they did a a bunch of other sports uh, as well. Um, You know, my one sister's a massage therapist and the other one uh, spent several years in the hospitality industry and now she's doing real estate and teaching, teaching yoga. Um, But they're doing great.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Usually the oldest, uh, seems to be the most responsible one. So, uh, but it sounds like, uh, you got a great family and it sounds like your sisters are really kind of, you know, in the recovery process, you know, with, with one of your sisters and the other one more in the hospitality. Uh, are you more of an introvert or an extrovert?
2: Yeah, I consider myself an introvert. Um, so if I'm in a social situation, um, you know, especially in a coaching situation or athletic, I will, I will tend to be more, you know, vocal. Um, but when it comes to sort of my day-to-day things, I absolutely crave my, my own time. Um, and it's something that is really important for me, uh, to just kind of keep me balanced, um, as well as, um, for creativity, you know, whether that's, I got projects going on or writing I'm doing, or, you know, academic work, that, that type of thing. Um, it's something I try to protect. Um, and it gets a little, you know, as I'm sure you both appreciate, it gets more, more and more challenging the older you get because life, uh, comes at you fast and it continues to just sort of fill up each day to the brim.
0: Yeah. I would say to be fair to yourself though, Joe, like if in a one-on-one or small group situation, you know, and I'm thinking our, uh, a wood-fired pizza and beer evenings you know um either (laughs) so solo or or with your better half um you're a great conversationalist and obviously with the the podcasting and stuff you've done as well like i think um maybe it's more of that like intj thing where you are social and you do like to be around people but it's a smaller group and and you know maybe that's that's where you thrive. Um, And I'm imagining with that, you know, that smaller select group at the Portuguese camps that you've, anytime I talk to you about those, you seem to light up. So I think um, there's got to be something there with being that smaller group interaction.
2: That's bang on. That's bang on, Phil. Um, Yeah, actually, when we would go out in college, I would, we would be in a, whatever, it'd be like a weekend house party or something, we go out. And I would almost always like, grab a cup and then like go kind of just chill in the corner by myself. I did not like big social situations, uh, and still don't. Um, like, you know, if I go to a, somebody's wedding and I get invited to or something, you know, I'll I'll say hello to the people I know, but like, I'm good with, just kind of sticking to myself. Like Seinf- smaller, like
0: yeah. like Seinfeld joked about, I think it was not in a Seinfeld episode maybe, but one of the little bits, you know, that he would do like before or during a Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Was, and he was like, "What? by the time you get to your thirties, like you're not hiring anymore. Like friend-wise, right? <laughs> the, the, the roster is full and we're no longer accepting applications.
1: Right, right. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah, what's the joke uh, another comedian said, if uh, you're over 30 or whatever, uh, and you have more than five friends, you're definitely counting co-workers. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> well, in the social media age, that's certainly true too, right? Like these people with 5,000 friends, you're like, man, how do you even, you know, I mean, Robin Dunbar with Dunbar's number proves that that isn't even possible. So we give it a name of friends, but, it, you know, and you have acquaintances and people you like and people you don't like maybe, but yeah, go, go a bit more into that joke.
2: Sure. Um, is there something specifically you wanted me to, to No. Upon? just
0: in terms of maybe through the lens of a coach now how that plays out in one-on-one coaching or as I said um, you know the small groups in Portugal maybe you could give people a bit of insight into how that came about and, and why you like that kind of setting as well.
1: Sure
2: yeah so um, so to, to just kind of bring clarity around Portugal so I, I've done um, independent camps masters rowing camps uh in of east portugal and then uh from 2018 through the conclusion of the tokyo olympics I was the head strength and conditioning coach for the portuguese rowing federation so i've had the the opportunity um you know very grateful for it met a lot of amazing people and athletes um to to visit that country and spend a lot of time there and work work there um, I, I like the smaller groups and working on one-on-one because you can see the impact and uh, you can make an impact much more immediately. And I think coaching uh, in a larger team setting is almost an entirely, in my opinion, it's almost an entirely different skill set. Like being a uh, in charge of a American football team, you know, where you have 53 athletes, like that's sort of beyond me, you know, I mean, you, you, at that point you need a staff, you need people to help facilitate, and you are more of the conductor of the orchestra. Um, and you're just making sure things are, you know, lining up and staying on target and stuff. And I'm very much a, in the trenches individual, and I, I am perfectly comfortable and enjoy, having the communication and and coaching with the athletes, but then also being a support staff member and working with, you know, one of the coaches, the high performance director, uh, or, you know, the physical therapist and sort of along that continuum of sport right there. Um, because all of that is, is immensely important. Um, but it's the impact it's being able to, you know, drive progress because, that's whether you're doing personal training or you're working with high performance sport. I mean, that's, that's what people are there for, right? They are there with a specific intention and a goal in mind, and you have to constantly be trying to, to move them forward in what they want.
0: I love that Jim. um, You know, whether we're doing, say, you know, the consulting um, with ASU say, or with Honey Baked Hockey, which is, you know, somewhat bigger groups or, in your role with the San Francisco Giants or obviously attending to all sports for 10 years at ASU, how did you kind of zoom in or zoom out? So if it's, you know, individual one-on-one with a counseling or sports psychology services, or you're in front of an auditorium with the whole football team, all the support staff, and maybe they haven't even made their cut yet. Maybe it's a hundred plus people in the room. How have you been able to kind of you know, scale that impact that Joe's talking about to, to different size audiences and just the nuances of so many different sports.
1: Yeah, I think that's the fun of it: working with a variety of athletes, uh, you know, across different sports and then different ages and uh, and and to me, the secret is you know trying to get to know who you're working with as well as possible. To get to know the coaches and get to know the athletes and you know, that kind of be part of the furniture, so to speak, you know, the more you're around them, the more that they, you know, kind of open up and, and can trust you a little bit. But, you know, we've all heard the saying, no one knows how much you care until they know, you know, or how much you know, until they know how much you care. But it also works the other way, too. You got to bring the goods, you know, like, uh, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily care how much you care, if you don't know much. So you got to kind of care and know a lot. Uh, but that's the fun of it. And I love that, you know, each team kind of has a, a language and, and a life of its own. And so kind of, you know, you, you know, you've made an impact when they start you know, incorporating some of your terminology in, in their language and how they communicate with each other. Um, but that's what I was wondering for you, Joe, in terms of, you know, working with kind of the younger athletes on the one hand, they're going through those growth spurts. And, you know, how do, how do you manage that? And then kind of the aging process for some of the older athletes that you've worked with.
2: Yeah, so um, that's a great question. And and so during the, from 2018 to, sorry, 2017 to December 2020, I worked uh, full-time as well for a sports performance center for a local community hospital in Kansas and uh, had the opportunity to work with many different high school athletes in different sports as well as you know, your master's athlete, um, and, and long example, hours,
0: Joe, I know this long hours, yeah, hours brother.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, but you learn a lot, right. And so, um, you know, I kind of, I started to frame it very differently because their, their needs and wants sort are, are very different. And so that high school athlete is very hungry and they're very driven and that the attitude is sort of around, tell me what I need to do to get better and I will do it. Um, which is a wonderful thing. You know what I mean? They're just a sponge. They soak it all up, but I sort of learned that can also be a little bit of a a dangerous thing. And what I mean by that is that um, I think it's really important for athletes nowadays um, at any level, at any age to be self-sufficient, meaning they understand why they are doing something and they can go off and have a quality training session and not be dependent on, on me. to me, that's the mark that I've done my job well. Um, but to come back to answer your question, so the the younger high school athlete, their their needs are centered around what can I do to get better. I am striving to to be a better athlete in my respective sport and have you know very good good performance. Older athletes or older individuals, um, they want to be healthy. Uh, they want you know good body composition and not necessarily um, you know, for vanity purposes, but very much tied towards, towards health. Um, when you start looking at things like cardiovascular disease, or if there's orthopedic issues in the family history, uh, or if they've had a recent surgery, um, it's very much linked to that. Uh, and then it's also about, you know, feeling good and taking care of their body as well as, you know, mental health and stress relief. Um, and that all changes, you know, at, type of job you have and how how stressful that is if you have a family or you know partner you know all the different responsibilities and so those are always very unique to each each individual you're working with
0: could could you double click a little bit on what you said about that kind of stress management you know mental health component of, of performance and of just you know as jim would say living a gold medal life and what you've observed both in, in your own practice as an athlete and, and a coach, but also in the craft of coaching and working with others?
2: Yeah. Um, well, you know, I don't know if we've been through a time period in any other point in history, quite like what we had in the last, you know, two years where the, you know, the first time in, in the modern Olympic games, it was delayed in a non-war setting. Um, and that was a massive load for any single athlete, whether they competed at the games or were training to compete there to extend that by another year. You're talking about individuals that are putting on hold their professional careers, um, potentially marriage, like, you know, their wedding ceremony, um, all of these other things. And you're now trying to navigate this in a pandemic environment with, you know depending again it, it's different for every country what their health um standards are and, and government regulations are and how you gotta and, and try to make that fit and get quality training in. Um, and so you know I think that is probably that what what I reflect back on is just um you know the way that we we framed it when the pandemic started getting underway in the spring of 2020 was we you know we took step back. And I remember Mike, our high performance director saying, and he kind of just repeated this message over and over again and and beat the drum very steadily was that the the individuals and the teams that handle this best and manage it and don't let this become noise and um, distract them are the ones that are going to to have their best performances, you know, when, when we have the Tokyo games. Um, and so I think that that was something that allowed us to all sort of bring that internal focus back re- and realign. Um, and then it came, became very much about, you know, making sure that you're, you're doing everything you can to follow the health and safety protocols around COVID-19. Um, and what was, sorry, uh, Phil, what was the second part of your question there?
0: Yeah, I was just wondering from a rowing perspective, because it demands mental toughness, right? Like yeah. it's not, <laughs> anyone that yeah. has never even rowed a two, a maximal 2,000 meter test on a rowing machine has no idea, like if they're really going to do that. But then you put yourself again in an ever-changing water conditions and in a tippy craft, and suddenly, whether it's that 2,000 meter course or Some of those longer courses that you would have seen in college, like it is a mentally, physically, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, you know, with your science of rowing, maybe you've done some research on this, that it's like running a, an NBA game back to back, like guys go out in the NBA and they play back to backs on consecutive nights, they don't do that. But you then you condense that misery into, like you said, between that five and a half minutes on the water and maybe, you know, seven minutes on an erg. So talk to us a little bit about the mental resilience or mental toughness requirement for rowing and and how you feel that that's maybe been been beneficial to you and you've seen it in others too.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that mental toughness and that resilience is going to come from doing the training and, and embracing it and um recognizing very much that those two things are linked together and um, when you sort of get to a place where you welcome it um, and not from like a you know masochist point of view or like oh i I love pain type of thing but more like i realize i'm going to put myself in a place of severe physical discomfort like this is really going but when i come out on the other side I have the opportunity to be where I want to be, right? Um, you have to be okay with that and acknowledge that. And um, uh, the latest issue that I just did for, for Science of Rowing was uh, a case study on Eskil Beveson, who was a three-time Olympic gold medalist from Denmark, and Thomas Keller, were winner in rowing. And we talked, uh, cause it was all framed around physiological changes over a 20 year period. And he had tons of data over him, VO2 max, blood lactate, WADA, da, 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 da all that stuff. And um, he said in the interview, I remember this sticking out. He was like, he's like, you know, we would sit down to do our training and when we get in the winter, he goes, I kind of always made a point that we would be keeping in touch with the urge because you need to see the splits. And you need to know that like, this is where I need to be because it's going going to be hurting and I need to be pushing a little bit harder. And sometimes you sort of need to get that visual feedback from the rowing ergometer, right? Um, And so I think it's, you know, about being being honest with yourself, but rowing is certainly not a sport where you get done and you are holding your, your hands over your head and you're like, you know, I did it fist pump type of thing. It's very much like, you know, you either, collapse into the the legs of the person behind you or you know might be vomiting over the side of the boat right because you've pushed yourself to such a physical limit you're actually sick like that's what you've done and i i did that plenty of times in college and stuff where like you you go so hard your body has a negative reaction right um and that's and sometimes that's what that's what you have to do to have that that type of top performance, right? And I think the older I've gotten and the more I know about mental health and um, the importance of nutrition and properly fueling and stuff, I think there's a time and place for all these things, right? Um, You know, when you're competing at the highest level, the, the, the focus is on the result, right? And the outcome and stuff. And so people are going to absolutely go to their physical limit and sometimes beyond it. And so that, that's going to be part of that. That's part of the, the deal, so to speak. Um, but around that, you, know, you need to make sure that the training that you're doing is sustainable and allows for consistency and you can do it over the long term. Um, and so taking a much more sort of methodical approach is really, really important as well.
0: I love that. Among top rowers and maybe even during this recent cycle with the Portuguese national team, outside of mental resilience or mental toughness, what are some other mindset attributes you've seen among top rowers and what's able to keep them going with this very, you know, psychologically, emotionally, physically, cognitively draining pursuit? As you said, with the gentleman with the 20 year plus case study, I mean, the fact that that study even exists shows that he obviously had some some grit and some determination and some drive, but also that mental resilience, but what else do you see among somebody that's maybe like yourself started at a young age and continues to keep going for very little commercial reward to even at the Olympic level, compared to a lot of sports, what, what are some of those mental attributes?
2: Uh, I think it's belief in yourself, you know, uh, like the unwavering belief that, you know, before you had the medal around your neck, you're already a champion. Cause you know, there's like, like anything else, you know, whether you're talking about entrepreneurship or high performance sport or something like, there's gonna be plenty of people out there that say you can't do it or you're not good enough. Right. Um, but the, the people that I've been around that um, have won the medals and stuff in my experience, that's a very common thread is that they uh, are very much um, uh, have a strong self-belief in themselves and uh, it's unwavering. Yeah. Guys, can we just pause one second? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no Sorry. worries. I think you can uh, I think you can pause the recording, actually, Phil. Oh, will.
0: Yeah. Resume.
1: Thanks. Well,
0: well Jim, um, Joe brought, brought up an awful, awful lot of uh, great stuff there in terms of mindset. What have you seen in, in rowing and other sports like it that are suffer-fest sports that are no one's going to be on a Wheaties box. Um, and unless you're in, you know, like with England, Steve Redgrave or Matthew Pinsent, everybody knew, knew, knew that, those names, right? But it, in the US and other countries, despite the success of the four and the eight over the years, doesn't have that kind of high profile, like the dream team or something like that. What are some characteristics you've seen, Jim, in those kind of suffer-fest sports?
1: Yeah, definitely uh, the confidence that Joe mentioned, uh, you know, believing in yourself to an unbelievable level uh then there's the concentration piece being able to you know focus on the right thing at the right time hopefully every time
0: kind of, that, um, kind of that MIB you know I just reread the boys in the boat again and they had that MIB and it doesn't stand for men in black kids we're not talking about Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith but it stands in that context for, for that great crew um mind in boat
1: Absolutely. Mind in boat versus mind, you know, in the classroom or mind and still in bed, you know, when you show up to to train. But uh, and then composure, obviously, uh, uh, you know, keeping a cool head, uh, you know, when things get hot. Uh, You know, I love that saying, you know, uh, cool heads win hot games. And uh, that's true in in sport and life. And then commitment being both feet in. Uh, but I do see a lot of the best of the best. They hate to lose more than they love to win. You know, they, they like the pageantry. They like having the medal put around their neck. They like, you know, the, the praise and the accolades. But what really just drives them nuts is someone beating them. And, you know, I don't want to settle for anything less than being the best. And so I'm sure you've seen some of those highly competitive athletes, Joe, and uh, and they're fun to coach. But that could bring up an interesting challenge for you because a lot of the best athletes that I've worked with Uh, their attitude is if I just do what coach tells me to do, yeah, coach might say, yeah, he listens to me, but I got to do more than that. And most of the best athletes that I've worked with will end up doing more on their own. So they have that extreme accountability. Uh, But that's a dangerous road, isn't it? Where it's kind of like I'm doing what coach says, well, am I going to really get a leg up on the competition? But then if I'm doing more, am I going to hurt myself or, you know, burnout? And a lot of those guys tell me, and again, these are, you know, the best of the best in a lot of cases have told me that, you know, Hey, burnout is a frame of mind. It's not a real thing. And it's mostly about under recovery. So they're really good at, you know, man, I need to be hardcore with my recovery, but also if I'm in a great state of mood and mind, um, I don't believe in burnout. And so that's, you know, a little, uh, a little heresy for, you know, some coaches, but what are your thoughts on that whole topic?
2: Yeah, I think it's, it it can be a slippery slope, right? Mm -hmm. Like more does not always equal better. It's, it's definitely about the quality of the training sessions. Um, and I also think that it's going to depend on, you know, the type of athlete you're working with and, and how old are they, you know, older athlete is going to need more recovery. Um, you know, whether they're um, very physiologically gifted or not, you, you just take more time to bounce back from harder training sessions, uh, as you age. Um, and so you kind of have to approach things a little bit differently. Um, you know, and, and if you have an older athlete on the team, you, you have to take those things into consideration when you're, you're writing the training program and you're going day to day and doing the training sessions. Um, and then your earlier point too, um, you know, about having a cool head, that was an, that's another common thread um, that I've seen, you know, being very steady, very, very steady, not getting too high, not getting too low, um, being able to sort of ride, ride out, you know, the moments or, or the periods where there's a lot of um, adversity that's going on um, and things are outside of your control is so, so important. Um, you know, and, and again, that's, that's something that it's almost like an, it's an attitude. It's just sort of the natural behavior and complexion of, of that person, you know?
0: I love that. Um, you've obviously been inside a pretty competitive boathouse or two, both as an athlete and a coach. And there are, you know, there is competition, particularly you get in that quadrennial or whatever you would call the, the most recent five year Olympic cycle. Heaven, you know, God bless those athletes and coaches and support stuff. But what is, um, you know, it's it, in some ways, say, a, you know, say again, a single scholar, okay, that's an individual thing, but there's still a competition to represent your country in that single, right? Um, obviously, once you start to get into the bigger boats, seats get moved around, you know, um, boat orders get changed, maybe there's literally a leaderboard up, maybe there isn't, maybe it's just virtual and it changes all the time. So talk to us a little bit about that whole, you know, people coming in and out of different seats and that competition for those very limited number of places, even in more of that kind of team situation with a, you know, whether it's a pair a four, you know, a quad or an eight.
2: Yeah, that's that, particular element is not something we had to deal with a ton of, um, with Portugal, because the the nucleus of the team was, was pretty small, Mm. um, in terms of the total number of athletes we had, but we only qualified one vote. um, and we qualified late. So for us, we were in a unique situation where the Olympics got delayed. And so the final qualification regatta for, for us, Portugal was in, uh, Italy. So all that got pushed back a year. So we had to qualify in April of 2021, and then you had to wind it down and then wind it back up again a couple months later for the the Olympics. Um, but having athletes that are pushing up the, the ones at the top in terms of the environment are really, really important because you, you create a healthy competitive situation where, um, you know, people are trying to get into the boat and then the people that are there have to be kept honest because there's people that are, you know, trying to, you know, make, make it crack in there if they haven't been in there before. Um, and that's a bit, you know, that's a very good thing. And you, you see that, you um, know, a lot, especially at the university and the collegiate level, and definitely on the national team level
0: as well. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of coaches, um, head coaches, and we've also kind of alluded to off camera a little bit about the, the, the skill of a, a great head coach in person management, personnel management, in communication, in knowing when to maybe demote someone from the first boat, the varsity boat down to the JV or the freshman boat, and then you know move things around and tweak things. What, who is a head, coach, head rowing coach that's really been influential in your life? And what's a lesson that you've taken from them, either about on-the-water things or off-the-water dynamics?
2: And that is a phenomenal question. Um, I could probably spend a whole other 90 minutes talking to you guys. Part about two. <laughs> Part two. Um, you know, I, I am extremely grateful and lucky Um, because every opportunity that I've had in my life, um, I can link back to rowing. Um, you know, my high school freshman rowing coach was Eric Bergman and his father was the head coach at university of Pennsylvania for over two decades. Um, so very early on, I was, I was getting high quality, good coaching. Um, and then my next coach was Chris Kinnicki. I had him for three years. Uh, and then in college I had. Uh, my freshman year, uh, Jim O'Connor, um, and then also uh, Greg Meyer the next three years. And then I worked for Dave Reichman. Um, but I think, you know, one of the people that most influential has been Michael Deredita. Um, and it was a, it was a turning point for me because I was in grad school and the, the training environment I came from in college was very much a like a high intensity high threshold type of training environment where you're doing a lot of intensity on a day every day basis and um you know looking back i had frequent colds or you know nagging injuries or and right because I, I mean
0: yeah. a lot of people don't know the central nervous system takes 72 hours or maybe more when you thrash it which is why we won't mention a certain modality but why we start to see legit adrenal fatigue and (laughs) legitimate you know chronic fatigue problems and constant sickness in people that go out and do four to seven days of super high intensity with it ramped to nine or ten right
2: yeah and you know
0: those approaches can work um and it's all about context though right it's it's totally about
2: context Yeah, yeah and i mean again like um so two, two separate thoughts there. So the first one is Mike. Mike, I remember sitting down. It was very, uh, is, a, is a moment I'll, I'll never forget. He, he opened up like an Excel file and showed me a, a training program. And it had like, you know, um, a bar graph. And it had all the different intensities week by week, month by month. And you could see like how much volume they were putting in at a low intensity, you, you know, UT2. So they were under the first lactate turn point you know, low heart rate and then the amount of high intensity work they did throughout the year was very low in comparison to the low intensity. work. But, you know, so I looked at that and I was like, at the, at that point in my life, it was very sort of revolutionary. It's like, what do you mean? I was like, you can train easier and go faster. Like that doesn't make any sense. And then on the flip side, you know, um, the, you know, I've been very fortunate to become good friends with Mads Rasmussen, um and Denmark is known for doing a high intensity training program you know and Mads would like look me square in the eye and be like he's like I don't like to do steady state I don't want to do steady state you know what I mean and they would do high intensity work you know five to six to eight times a week um yeah it's interesting
0: you see that through um Different paddle sports. So I had the pleasure of, you know, my book, Waterman 2.0 with Kelly Starrett, of interviewing um, Jimmy Terrell, Jim Terrell from Quickblade Paddles, you know, an Olympic paddler, a world champion paddler. Sure. Um, and he said, you know, in the kneeling disciplines, which again is a funny thing that people might not see till it gets the Olympics. But trust me, the average person cannot do that, right? They just can't at a high level. But Jimmy said it's partly personality. When you, once you get to what he is now as a master paddle crafter, but also as a coach, in that he hated long, slow distance. So it, his idea of of long, slow distance was just longer intervals and more of them. <laughs> but yeah. he's like, I, now it's taken him until his mid fifties or early sixties now to to recognize that both in himself as an athlete, but then also that his predilections as an athlete crossed over into his coaching and to think, like you're talking about context, and you're saying that these two coaches with very differing approaches, but both work, but it's context in the middle.
2: Yeah, it's context. And then, and then that sort of brings the next layer, right? And so I think, you know, for me, what what I think needs to be factored in is what you look at the way that all these different individuals and, and different athletes have had success and how they approach training. A very, very important thread is when you are at a national team or high performance level, you also have to understand the country that you're working in and recognize what's going to work well, because there's cultural differences between the, the US and Portugal and how they sort of do their day to day.
0: Yeah. Double click on that for a second. And then also add like, say Denmark into the mix or say someone like Mahi Drysdale from New Zealand. So talk to us a little bit about what some of those are and how they have affected um, the training methodologies within those countries and even how maybe laissez faire coaches versus it's my way or the highway, like super rigorous.
2: Yeah, totally. And and so I think that's the, I think that's another key element is when you go in there, like, you're going to have your thoughts and your beliefs and your approach, but you sort of have to find that intersection point and and recognize like, there's going to be a, you got to give a little bit and you got to find what's going to work with the athletes that you have in the environment, in the country that you are and be adaptable and be flexible. Cause it's really important. Um, but, you know, we, we did the program that we had at Portugal was very much a, uh, polarized type of training program, very much, you know, Stephen Siler, you know, majority of the year they were spending it UT two, um, we would do higher intensity work, you know, one to two times a week. And then we would have a, a period where they would build up, you know, for, for the race and do more frequent, higher intensity work. Um, but it was a polarized training program. Now you can pair that with, um, what Denmark has traditionally done. And then, you know, I think now they're much more in a polarized, but when Mads was an athlete and when Eskil was, was an athlete, it was very much a, a higher intensity interval type training program. And it was very interesting. Um, Eskild had said early on in his career, they would do a lot of the intervals were short. They would do like, you know, one plus one or 500 meters, And then he's got later in his career, they would do longer intervals, like thousand meter or five minute pieces, that type of thing. Um, But it was always, it was always around like, you know, high quality and uh, Mads would say to me that they would only, they would train once a day, you know, they would train Monday through Friday, once a day. Um, And then maybe twice on Saturdays, you know, because he was going through med school and then his sculling partner was a, a full-time plumber. <laughs> so you're doing you're working a full day and then you're gonna go train, right?
0: Right. Again, which and, speaks to the, you know, this is not LeBron James showing up and doesn't need the money or the exposure or anything else that comes with it, right? But it's you know, and we saw in the last Olympic cycle now this. I can't, man. Like, I've got too much mileage as it is. i, I I've got to pass on being part of this Olympic basketball team. Um, been there, done that kind of idea. Whereas like rowing, <laughs> yeah, like you said, one of my favorite books is um, is David Halberstam's The Amateurs. So obviously, you know, Bill Simmons says that Halberstam's The Breaks of the Game is the basketball best basketball book ever written. Well, he's arguably written one of the best rowing books, despite not necessarily being a rower, right? But yeah yeah the amateurs you know which is the, the skull is trying to make the 84 um la olympic team for the us just their day-to-day life i mean some of these guys are borderline starving you know <laughs> i mean they're they're doing two or three manual labor jobs they're you know they're putting in the up uh, what damien lillard calls the unseen hours in the boat either late or early or both and i love that you alluded to that that it's there's some nobility in that there's some glory in that. yeah totally i
2: mean. It, it, you know, our athletes, I mean, um, Afonso who stroked the the lightweight men's double for Portugal. I mean, he was, you know, still, I, I believe he just finished up his master's degree. So, I mean, for a lot of the, the training leading up to Tokyo, he was, he was in school. Um, you know, so it, you're doing all that around your, your athlete life, so to speak. Um, and so my, my point coming back to the sort of the different, the different mm-hmm. training, uh methodologies, they can all be successful. Um, but to your point, you've got to sort of, you know, certain athletes are going to gravitate towards a certain type of training. And then, but you also kind of have to find what works well in the environment and the country um, in the day to day. And what's going to be again, what's going to allow consistency for good quality training and what's going to be sustainable over the long term, which is what is going to allow you to actually build up a system have a lot of athletes and have success over many olympic cycles
0: i love that um jim what have you seen in sports where athletes have other jobs right like is it a roofer is it a plumber is it a you know what is it or or a full-time school or a combination thereof and they're also competing at you know a world championship or olympic level what have you seen around their time management around their drive their motivation that that keeps them going in a scenario where a lot of people would say the sacrifice isn't worth it. It's too heavy. I can't do all this anymore.
1: Well, I think you end up having to, uh, you know, do what you love or love what you do uh, because, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, there's a lot more grunt work than glitter, you know, in terms of being great at anything. And um, I just think they love their sport so much. They love being around the people in their sport so much. It's just a love of the game. And so they'll do whatever it takes to uh, give themselves that opportunity, but you're right. You know, it takes uh, like we talk about Phil, it's uh, those other hours of the day when you're not doing your sport, you better really be on the ball. Um, and then like Joe said earlier, it's tough to be good at a bunch of different things. Like you were talking about, you know, like academic school um, and uh, sport. And and that's the thing. What are your lasers? You know, you can only have probably two two, maybe three lasers where it's like, man, I really need to be all in, in these areas. And uh, so one of the questions that I ask athletes a lot is when they tell me that they have a big time commitment to whatever they want to achieve in life. Uh, what are you willing to give up? You know, cause we always talk about what we're, what we most want to do, but okay. What, what are you willing to give up? And it, it, you know, might be a lot of social time. It might be, you know what, I'm going to get, you know, B's in class instead of A's, you know? So uh, it's tough. We all have to make those decisions. And I think that that's a good reminder for all of us that life really is a series of choices.
0: Totally. I love that. totally. Yeah. 100%. And Joe, I mean, you've given up the security and the safety of that job at the at the hospital or the health, you know, the performance center there to pursue a combination of things around your, you know, developing your craft, developing as a human being. So whether it's you know with your masters and now going into your phd program soon um it's you know doing that job for the portuguese um you know rowing federation again not for not for coach k money should we say um, and, and you know doing the science of rowing so talk to us a little bit about what sacrifice looks like for, for joe these days
2: well so I, uh, I i resigned from my job in december 2020 and then, um, you know, wrapped up, packed my bags, and then headed on a plane over to Ireland. Um, I was there for uh, nine months in total. Um, Came back, you know, briefly to get uh, vaccinated and then also to go do a a training camp in Portugal before the Olympics. Um, But the, the whole purpose of this past year was to, you know, Refocus on getting a higher level degree to to move my career forward, um, and it was one hundred percent worth it. Um, it was great to be over in another country um, and meet new people and just you know be exposed to different ways of thinking and different approaches to training and different sports. Um, you know, get back to you know the the fundamentals, the underpinning science and stuff, um, and so. You know, that has, uh, set me up for my, my next, you know, opportunity, which is to be able to do a, a PhD at the university of Kansas under Dr. Andrew Fry. Um, so I'll start that in August, 2022, and I'm super excited about it. It's going to be a fantastic, um, but kind of coming back to your question, I think what what I, what I started to start to realize is like, you know, I was over there by myself, um, was able to really just be very singularly focused on the academics, and you know, I had the articles of was doing for Science Rowing, and then coaching for Portugal, and that was that was kind of it. And it was very manageable because it was just me. And you come back uh, stateside, and um, we were able to buy a house this fall, and then we had to pack and then unpack and move, and um, you know, I'm doing all this while I'm finishing up and writing my uh, master's dissertation um, you know, and started part-time work at, you know, working at Starbucks, um, you know, so you have all these different things going on that are sort of competing for, you know, your mental headspace as well as your, your physical energy and your time and everything. And so what, what I've kind of gotten to, or, or what I've realized and am at peace with now is like, you have to let certain things slide. Right. And that doesn't mean you consciously choose to do a, a piss poor job, you're not, you're not half-assing it, but you have to recognize that, like, this isn't going to be my best, because I have to be over here, and this has to be the best right now, and this is, this is what's needed of me, right, and, like, you know, making sure I'm there for Nellie, and, um, you know, we're taking care of everything at our new house, and getting set up, and getting settled, and stuff, that's, that's super, super important, um, and then, you know, it was finishing up my, my dissertation, now that's been submitted, and stuff, I can kind of Get a little bit of a breather and and refocus again. But it's letting,
0: being okay with letting certain things slide. Has that been a process for you? Is that, because I don't think that, that, because you, I know you, and I know when you do something, as Jim said about mind in boat, that if it's mind in boat for your academics or in your marriage or in your one on one coaching or in science of rowing, your tendency is to grab that slider and go 10 on everything yeah. right yeah well, the that, same way that, <laughs> we know each other all too yeah, well
2: <laughs> exactly and what i've realized is you can't do it it's not sustainable you get you get tired you get burned out your work suffers the quality of your work suffers all that you can't do it um and it's gonna my comment's gonna the next comment's gonna sound uh conceited and arrogant but I'll say it anyway
0: so arrogant Joe gosh yeah
2: so so Nellie said this to me and she's like she's like you know you have to realize like she's like you're very good at what you do and like you at 70 to 80 percent is like still better than other individuals at their best right and that and it's going to sound like again conceited and arrogant but but there are certain things that I do that my certain areas of expertise where that's very true and that doesn't mean that I'm doing a bad job, right? That just means that I know I can certain let certain areas slide a little bit and still put out good quality work because there's other things in my life or professional career that I need to focus on here and now. And uh, you got to know when to sort of throttle up and throttle down.
0: I love that. Yeah, Chase Jarvis said something, you know, founded the Creative Life platform and is obviously an award-winning filmmaker and uh, photographer. And, and he was saying like, As a freelance creative, you don't need to have an invoice that would be like if someone was giving out awards for beautiful invoices, That that, like an Excel spreadsheet is fine. And if the client wants a PDF, just print it to PDF. You don't need like this thing that you spend hours and hours getting this beautiful pdf template that's you know all your branding and all of this stuff he's like just send them the freaking spreadsheet get the invoice out and get that check son you know um now there are elements and obviously if you're in the visual arts well, maybe your website needs to be a bit stronger than say a writer or you know um a filmmaker or somebody that you know the visual side isn't as important to but his point was even as a a creative entrepreneur you need to pick and choose the stuff where good enough is good enough and then for him his craft is now podcasting it's what he does with his business creative live and it's still photography um and those are the things where he will always dial it to 10 but shoot an invoice, dude, again, a basic Excel spreadsheet is fine for that. And you just can't, what do you see, Jim, in in high performers that you work with and how they start to decide between essentials and non-essentials and then move those effort dials up, up or down?
1: Yeah, it's funny, as we were talking about this, and I was listening to you guys, the, uh, man, I I started thinking about coaches, (laughs) because uh, a lot of the best coaches I've been around, uh, it's their, 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 you know, their team, and their family, and that's it. And occasionally they'll get out and golf, you know, every blue moon, but that's it. Um, you know, those are their two lasers and, uh, that's where all their energy and attention goes, but they love it. They just love, you know, just what they do and, and, and who they surround themselves with. So yeah, it is tough because, uh. Uh, you know, I had one athlete tell me, you know, you can't, you can't uh, full ass everything. There's some things that you got to half ass. (laughs) And he said, you know, you just got to put up with that. Uh, But it's hard because, you know, peak performers want to be perfect or they're best at everything, but lots of luck, you're just going to spread yourself too thin. And so I like what you guys are saying that, you know, you have to keep those, you know, one or two main things, the main things.
0: I love that. Um, Joe, you know, part of your sacrifice over the last few years has been your pursuit of learning. What is it about learning both through the science of rowing, which people should check out, which I would summarize as taking, you know, research scientists speak and putting into layman's terms that can be applied by, you know, um, athletes, coaches, maybe even sports parents of of young rowers um, and really get creating those. So what takeaways. So how does this affect, you know, athlete safety or athlete performance, athlete recovery? It's really a great thing you're doing with that. And then also your your academic learning. What what drives that that thirst for learning and what what excites you about learning from you know both professors and from what the, the literature says currently and what the progression there? What is that? Um what makes you want to be that kind of eternal white belt, so to speak?
2: Yeah, it's probably the the, the athlete part of me that hasn't died yet, right? So like um, you know, you get to a point where you start learning um, of kind of where you sit in the athlete realm of things. And and it's like, it's literally like math. You're like, okay, well, here's my physiological output. And it's like, here's what some of the best are doing. And then here's the gap. And you're like, yeah, I can train this much, but I'm not going to close that. Like you have your, your sort of genetic baseline. Right. So, but the, the part of that, that's still an athlete is, is like, I'm always trying to get a little bit better. I'm always driven to, to learn a little bit more. Um, you know, all the books that I buy are like, you know, around physiology or coaching or training and stuff. Cause I just love, I love reading about it. I love learning about it. Um, it's sort of, again, it's that insatiable thirst or, or itch or hunger. Um, and you know, it's just, it, it, it's, it allows you to connect with individuals like yourself. Right. And so, um, you know, that's the way I've also kind of looked at the, the podcast that I've run the last several years and um, the opportunities going over to Ireland and now doing the PhD is you get to, you get to be supervised or mentored by somebody and like, they accelerate your learning. Like you, you, you get them, like, it's this amazing opportunity. You get them and they are going to share with you everything that they've learned. And like, as a result, it's just going to, you know, skyrocket
0: your progress i love that um well this has been kind of a masterclass for us it's been really great jim um to be respectful of joe's time do you maybe have one last question and then after that joe you can kind of share where people can can catch up you know with with leo training with the podcast and, and all the other great stuff you're doing
1: yeah my final question this has been wonderful um and we really appreciate your insight joe um what what are for for us mere mortals uh Phil's more of a of a you know gangster when it comes to uh, rowing, but for us, Mayor mortals, he's the of,
0: water. Unfortunately, maybe. <laughs> Joe could change that maybe at some point. But
1: well, in terms of mind over erg, uh, what oh, what are some yeah little quick tips for us in terms of you know whether self talk or visualization or you know counting you know counting strokes that that might help us that that maybe have a erg machine or a rowing machine down down in our basement.
2: Yeah, so um, a couple of them. So, um, you know, a couple of different pieces of advice from different coaches that I got over, over my lifetime. So one, one is, is um, my college coach, Greg Meyer, said this. If you're going to do a training session by yourself, um, like unless it was something you had to do and submit a score, he's like, just let the error count up from zero. You guys don't actually program anything. Cause like if something comes up and you know you decide like you know you had enough, he's like, it's not a quote unquote fail. You didn't stop, right? Um, so I think that's important, right? Because it's the context how you look at it, you frame it.
0: Yeah, whereas you, if you program it for people that have never done that, say you say, okay, I'm going to do eight times five hundred meters with three minutes thirty seconds rest in between each well, that's great until your son comes in. And it's like, hey, dad, I need your help with this real quick. And you're like, gosh, dang, you get off. <laughs> and then that whole thing, yeah, it's almost like the whole Strava fail idea, right? The endurance community. Yeah. So yeah, or, or in my case, your splits are so bad these days, you just turn the monitor face down and you just do your thing and hope for the best.
2: <laughs> well, so that's that's one hack, right? And then the other one kind of on, on your point, Phil, is so I would, I would, you got to find what's like the, the, the smallest like, chunk of like work time that you can do at a high intensity level and find that. And it's going to be different for everybody. Right. So like, maybe that's, you know, 10 seconds, maybe it's 30 seconds, maybe it's a minute on and off, find that and just get good at working really, really hard at a high intensity at that level. Right. And until it becomes easy, your rate of perceived exertion drops down and then work on increasing the interval length right until you mentally build up enough resilience where you're like every time i sit on this i'm doing i did whatever 10 by 30 seconds and i had a minute rest or a minute half rest and i get done and i and i sit down that day and i know before i sit down i'm gonna fucking smash it i'm gonna just smash that training session then you're like all right it's time i can start increasing it a little bit and so you're you're sort of building in success, right? You have to set yourself up with the training so that you're in a position to continue to do well. Whereas if you try to be like, all right, I'm gonna do this really intense, hard training session and I'm gonna kick butt and you know, and then you get through it and you're doing a couple of pieces, you're like, oh crap, I got you know two or three left and I'm like, I'm done, like I'm toast. Like this is outside of my current fitness level. So that's the other piece is just being patient, especially as you get older. And that's, that's been a big change for me is learning to train yourself into shape instead of like, you're working yourself into shape, you know what I mean? So just being patient and realize it's going to take some time, you will know, get there and just keep coming back for more consistency. So it's good. Intensity.
0: Well, Joe, what would you say around the temptation, particularly guys that you see in gyms where they're, Obviously, the form's bad because they're grilling it with the back and the arms. And they wonder why their lower back hurts or their shoulders hurt. But they've almost invariably got that that damper setting on 8, 9, 10. Is there anything around humility and around the realization that even the, a lot of the speed records on the ERG were set with a way lower damper setting? Any thoughts around that? Just for again, for the average, I was going to say the average, Joe, that's the worst dad joke ever, Jim. I apologize, guys. Mm-hmm. but You know what I'm saying, Joe.
2: Yeah, I think um, like anything, if, it, if it's something that you're truly interested in, right, like take the time to seek out somebody that can work with you and teach you the fundamentals, the technique. Um, and it's going to, again, it's going to skyrocket your, your progress. An hour spent with somebody that is a good coach um, and is going to set you up well. It, your training is going to be more enjoyable. You're going to physically feel better. You're going to get more out of it. And then you're going to have a nice ramp of progression where you can go from.
0: Love that. Well, Joe, where can, um, where can people learn more about your work, follow you, keep up with you?
2: Sure. Uh, so my website is leotraining.io. And then our monthly publication that we have is Science of Rowing. Um, and you'll find that at science And so we publish, uh, three, um, reviews, of peer review journal articles each month, and we provide practical takeaways for coaches and rowers, at all levels. Um, and those are kind of the two that you can find me at, um, and on, on social media at coach underscore Joe DeLeo on Instagram. And, uh, I think my Twitter handle is Jay DeLeo. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. And thanks again, guys, for the opportunity. really appreciate you. Oh, that's me all
0: right. Well, where I want to find you is spin pizza for some Goodwood Fire Pizza and, and a stout. You know, that's that's yeah. really where we want to find you. So we'll have to uh, get Jim on that at some point when we can all come into KC and, and hang out.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: We well, really appreciate your time and your insight today as always. And um, yeah, you've just been such a big supporter of of mine and encourager and helper and uh for anyone that doesn't know joe and i've done some fun articles together for for training peaks and train heroic over the years so assuming they haven't taken those down just google either of those with his name and uh those will come up but yeah it's just been a pleasure to to uh to get you to know you as both a collaborator and a friend over the years joe and um i think people listening today will have taken a, a, a lot of wisdom and uh we'd love to have you back for a part two if you're up for it
2: Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. And Jim, great meeting you this afternoon. And Phil, likewise, we're going to, we might have to hit up Buffalo State Pizza, that new
0: pizza place. Oh, there we go. Insider info. I love it. We'll do it. it. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends about the Champion Conversations podcast and rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. You can also follow Jim on Twitter at Gold Medal Mind. Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.